Imagine Sunday morning on a nice spring day. You're walking down the street, you turn a corner, and boom, the scent hits you. It's sweet, it's delicious, your brain is just shuffling through the names of the different baked goods that it might be, and it settles on this nostalgia that fills your heart. That memory of a grandparent's tasty treats is just met with the visual representation of the bakery where the scent is wafting from as you continue to walk down the street. When you get into the bakery and the door clangs, it's clear that your nose was telling your eyes the truth. And before long, your taste buds are just joining in on the fun. And after sampling multiple offerings, it's clear that the time and dedication spent on these tasty treats and going to the bakery to get those treats was well worth it. But if you think about it and you take a step back, what exactly went into getting to that point where you're enjoying that scent and that taste that you were seeking? What had to go into making that a successful product? Well, creating a fantastic product that can be replicated over and over again takes vigilance. At the back of the house, there has to be clear values and goals to guide progress. You have to make sure you're experimenting a certain percentage of the time to understand exactly how to get the recipe correct. And then when you're considering personnel, it doesn't do anyone any favors to make excuses for past deadlines and misappropriated skills. And above all else, learning has to be ingrained into the process or stagnation with the recipe will take over any improvement that you might be making. These are hard lessons to learn when building a business. And someone who has done a fantastic job not only learning these lessons, but making sure that they don't have to learn them again, has been David Hauser, particularly on his journey founding Grasshopper and Chargeify. As an operator, he was able to push forward a borderline ruthless approach to growth and progress. And to top it off, he has an insatiable appetite to strategically execute new ventures. While he may not be building his own nostalgic-inducing bakery, he does know what it takes to develop an all-star product. His learnings and takeaways are coming exclusively to you right after this. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, David Hauser dishes it out on operations. We talk about the itch to strategically operate, a system for firing and developing people, keeping the rhythm with the operational success, building a culture of learning, and sharing numbers in a way that motivates. So, I mean, I've had the chance to start a number of different companies. I think the most successful or most well-known is Grasshopper, um, built from zero to $30 million a year in revenue and ultimately sold to Citrix. And that took us 12 years from starting to selling. So an overnight success, um, 100% bootstrapped, no outside capital at all, had to be very cash efficient, ran into lots of problems, lots of reasons why we couldn't grow and we were cash strapped and such. Also built Chargeify during that time at Grasshopper, ultimately sold it to Scaleworks. I think you know all those guys pretty well and was able to see a different part of the industry, right? How to do enterprise sales, how to do other things that we might not have learned at Grasshopper. Since then, spent a lot of time on myself learning, did a 200 hour teacher training for yoga. So that was kind of my part of my learning. I didn't know that. That's cool. Uh, Wrote a book, started a, a CPG company, super fat, 
How's that going, uh, by the way? I was just, I was going to ask if you weren't going to mention it. I was like, how are the nut butters? That's what I wanted yeah, to know. Yeah, it's going well. We expanded to cookies now. So we have cookies. Um, we have another, two other lines coming out shortly. Um, it's grown pretty substantially. And now we're thinking through how do we fund growth going forward and maybe how, how do we fundraise for that business? And then also acquired a business and rebranded it called Delegated in the virtual assistant space. So again, a whole new industry, a whole bunch of things to learn. It's been fun. Yeah. You and Martel are like, you're starting to look alike. You're starting to have like the same haircut. You're both very fit now. And now you're working together on that, which is cool. Yeah. And that is that going well? I know Red Butler, you guys bought, which I had used Red Butler in the past and it was like the premium one and it was fantastic. And so then yeah. I had someone in house, but yeah. Have you guys shifted that at all? Or is it, is it something where it's kind of the same concept, just a little, little bit better streamlining? Yeah. I mean, obviously we changed the brand. I, you know, we've, we've built the team up quite a bit, added a lot. Um, we probably more than doubled the team since we purchased it. And I think as we start to shift in looking at more enterprise deals as well, we're still staying very high end, right? But when I say enterprise, that's, you know, us providing, you know, for example, you a full-time assistant to help with all your executives, right? But it's full-time to only to you. They're not fractional. They're not hourly, you know, any of that stuff. And we work with, you know, your computers, your security systems, you know, all fully integrated, you know, just remote, right? Um, So there's a number, I can't say the company's names, but, you know, we work with a bunch of them and we've done a very good job of being able to fully integrate for them. So we have some companies in the highly regulated industries where our assistants take training and certifications and stuff that you wouldn't typically find. Right. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those classic, like if you do your job, they don't know you exist. So it's hard to sometimes say those things, but what I've always been impressed by with you, man, and I'm kind of curious before we get deeper into some of this is like, you seem to me like you just have this itch to operate and to like run stuff. Right. And when you were doing more investing and obviously that's, you know, that's, that's always something to, to do. Like, would you consider yourself an investor? Or are you more like a strategic operator? And that's my word for, you're not quite full-time directly in, but you're kind of like, you know, a, a very active chair person, you know, essentially. Like, is that kind of the vibe? Is that how you'd characterize yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I love building and growing, right? Like, that's what I love doing. And I specifically love the scaling stage. So like, how do you go from a million to 10 million? And how do you go from 10 million to 20 or 30 or 50 or, you know, whatever the next set of stages are, right? that interests me the most. And I've pulled back on all of my investing. So maybe I make one or two investments a year, pretty strategic in nature. Either I want to learn something or it's a founder I've worked with before, um, very unique profile. But in general, my belief at this point is for me to provide the most value to the world, that means me operating businesses and helping actually do things, not just providing capital to someone. And if I want the best return for me, which is happiness, that's the, the path to it, right? It's not investing in random companies. Yeah. And you still get headaches. You get a little bit of less of like the weird headaches that are very reactionary and you get to kind of like, you know, I don't want to say play God, but you get to play like chairperson, you know, and kind of direct things a little bit, which is good. I just want to control my destiny, right? Like yeah. it's very frustrating being an investor and people ask for advice and outside of just money and you know, yeah. people don't listen, people don't care, people don't follow up. Like, I prefer to, you know, not listen to myself and screw things up myself, right? Like, yeah. I, I can do that on my own, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and I think that's a really good topic to go into is like scaling, because I think there's so much advice for zero to one, right? There's books literally written with that title. 
And I think there's a lot of advice when it's like, oh, let's interview Stuart from Slack about how to create a, you know, multi-billion dollar company. But like the real crap is that one to like 50, one to a hundred, you know, kind of, kind of place. Like, I don't want to say fail, but why did they stall? Like, what are the primary reasons you think they stall between one and, and 50 or one in a hundred? I don't like the word stall there because I think some companies are designed to be that size, right? And you can be a tremendously successful company in at $20 million, right? Like that is a really great company, especially at $50 million, right? We don't hear about them. And the reason we don't hear about them is because well-run companies like that produce so much cash and wealth that we never hear about it, right? They don't go to raise money. They don't sell, right? Like they just operate and generate wealth for a long time, right? So I think the, the problem with that narrative is that it's not a stall. It's actually the right size for that company. But what do you think about those companies that they're not right size, let's say? So we can use a different word besides stall, but like <laughs> they're at a million, it should be 10, right? Or it should be more than, than what it is. Like based on your experience, because I know at Grasshopper, that's obviously where you cut a lot of your teeth and then you've replicated that across different places. Like what happens there? I think the biggest problem, and we face this again and again, is you outgrow the people and processes internally, right? So getting to a million dollars takes a certain set of skills as an entrepreneur, people, employees, staff, right? Um, going from a million to 10 is a different set. Now going from 10 to 20 is even, even different, right? And I kind of break this into categories of, you know, getting to a million dollars is usually a small team and a bunch of doers, right? I say to Patrick, go do this, come back to me. Go do this, come back to me, right? And I have to direct everything and I have to touch everything as the founder. Going from one to 10, I now have to get more people that can kind of do on their own, right? And I have to now give strategic direction. Like, here's where I think we should be going and why and such, right? Going from 10 to 20 plus, you now need people that are giving you strategic direction and saying, hey, David, this is where I'm taking this department or this section of the business or whatever, and why, here's how I'm going to get there. And then you just say, you're kind of saying yes and no and more directing traffic at that point, right? Those are very different types of teams, processes, hiring, like everything changes at those points. And I think a lot of companies fail because the founder is not able to change themselves or not able to realize that the team has Is that just a purely emotional thing? Because I think a lot of times in hindsight, the founders can point that out, right? Like after we sold at three, but then, you know, we realize, oh, it was because of this, this, this or that other thing. Like, is it just a, oh, they were in the trenches with me from one to five and now from five to 10, I just don't feel comfortable like letting them go, but maybe I'm not willing to even say it like that. Yeah. I, th I think there's a, you know, loyalty issue. There's a number of different things, but you can take care of people throughout those transitions and just because someone, you know, can't stay in a leadership position at 20 million when they were at five doesn't mean they have to leave the organization. Mm -hmm. um, but the way I look at it is very much like if we're not the right fit for you and you're not the right fit for us, I'm doing a disservice and not quickly bringing that to the service. Right. And that's a disservice to you as the team member, because you would thrive far better somewhere else. Yeah. Right. And it sounds kind of trite, like. Yeah, you know, we always say like we're not firing, we're freeing up opportunity or whatever BS people want to say. Yeah. But but that really is true when you think like 
at a different organization stage company, you would be happier, thrive more, probably make more money, right? Because all of those things you would do better at, right? How do you convince someone about that? And I, I'm kind of goading you into how do you fire someone? Because you know, I think it's I think it's one of those things where you and I have talked about that before. Because it's so hard. Because you got the Patty McCords of the world, you know, the whole Netflix model, which is very, very much right up this right up this alley, right? Which is very, hey, you're going to build resentment because you know the company's going to build resentment, and it's just not good for you. And the job's done, right? It's not a why do we treat this so negatively? It's just the job's done. Let's help you get you know another job somewhere else, or if there is something internally, let's get you that. Like. Why do those conversations just go so poorly all the time? Yeah. So I think there's just an unfortunate mentality of like, this is a family and like, you can care about people in a family and still deliver difficult news. Mm. Right. And I think that's the key to understand, like you can still be kind and enjoy the presence and the culture of your company, but still be very firm and direct about these conversations. That's one. Two, you know, by the time we start thinking as founders about firing someone, the rest of the team has already decided, yeah. right? So the, the games that we play in our mind are really not fair. Like we say, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe they can get better. The rest of the team has already said, no, David is no longer a fit, he needs to go, mm-hmm. right? And then on top of that, we then make the next excuse, like David is the only person who knows you know, how the network works, right? Maybe, usually not true, right? Yeah. But even if it is, if you fire that person quickly, someone else will step up and figure that out, right? Like we make a lot of excuses for why we can't, we need to wait two months, we need to wait to the next quarter. Like, no, we need to do it now because everyone else already knows. Yeah. Well, and then the old adage of, or I don't know if it's the right adage, but you know, that's going to discourage other people if they're sticking around and having to clean up for them, that type of thing. A, a players like being with A players, right? Yeah. And they all like winning together and playing together at a high level. If there's someone on that team who's not playing at that level, it de- demotivates everyone. So, you know, people, people aren't always the same. How are you making sure that you're getting ahead of this, you know, on the, on the people kind of access of this? What do you mean by getting ahead of the people access? Like meaning like evaluating of the performance, okay. making sure that expectations are set, these types of things. Like, I think that's, at least for me, from the one to 10 stage, we would do work craptastic at that like it was like we would sit around and we blame ourselves like oh this person's not good because we didn't get this thing for them let's give them another quarter and like all this other you know craziness which it's not wrong but it's just it's not doing anyone any good service so like what what's the system that you suggest for that stuff yeah so the way i like to do this is i I like to think in terms of years quarters months and weeks right and try to break down feedback into those groups right so on a weekly basis myself or whoever the direct, you know, report or manager is should be having very open and direct conversations in a one-on-one about what's working, what's not working, where are you stuck? How do you need help? Like this is actionable day-to-day things that we should be talking about, right. To make sure that none of that ever happens, right? Like if there's a resource you're missing, we should know within seven days, right? Like just period, right. On a monthly basis, having a little bit of a deeper look where we start to have conversations like, what does a career path look like? Patrick, do you want to be a manager? No, you want to be a more senior individual contributor. That's fine. But like, let's openly talk about those things so I don't force you into a management role you don't want to be in, or I overlook you when you do want to be in a management role, or whatever the path forward is, right? 
And again, this seems small, but I think is very important, ending all of these meetings with the, is there anything else question? Very open, like that's where we start to discover problems very quickly, right? On a quarterly basis, thinking about how do we review performance as it relates to our goals, right? So obviously lots of people talk about OKRs and you know, roll down and up, roll up reporting. I think that's a little too complex, right? Mm. I think that as an individual, you should have some goals. It is your manager's responsibility to figure out how that contributes and rolls up. You don't have to worry about that as much. You should understand it, but it's not on you to create those OKRs like some people pushed pretty heavily. And now we're having more in-depth conversations. Patrick, you know, why is it that two of your projects are red when you have three projects? What's happening? We talked about this every week. Every month we talked about higher level issues. And now we're at the end of this quarter and you still have two red projects. First, I failed. I shouldn't have let you get to the end of the quarter with two reds, right? What happened and why? And how do we make sure this doesn't happen again, right? Again, we're shortening the cycle. And then a yearly kind of review, which is, Now we talk about compensation, we talk about future responsibilities, that type of a process and thought process, I think gets you ahead on most of these issues. Just to kind of clarify, because I think you hinted at some like very pragmatic pieces. So for one, you know, one-on-ones, you know, it feels like very common thing that's been talked about for two, having those specific goals. So do you set those with the person? So you have these company-wide goals and then those kind of trickle down. You set them with the person and then they manage kind of the tracking essentially. Is that is that what I picked up on? Yeah. So you set them with the person and they're responsible for reporting and tracking. Got it. And it doesn't have to be complex. Red, yellow, green, right? Yeah. I want to know a quick look and we should be able to communicate quickly where we're at, understanding we understand together what red, yellow, green means. And yeah, I mean, you need buy-in. So I think it has to be created together as a collaborative process. Again, I'm the person responsible for linking it up. Right. I'm taking the company's quarterly goal and I'm figuring out what Patrick has to do. Right. And if he's in marketing, like here are the three things that I need him to get done this quarter. Because there's a lot talked about, like, you know, with OKRs, measure what matters, you know, Doris Book, right? There's a lot talked about like setting the the big three things at the company level and it kind of filtering down. And is your kind of theory here that basically, you know, that BDR isn't going to know what the hell to do, but let alone like, you know, even some steps and rungs above that or, or what, what was kind of the little aside at uh, OKRs? People want to know that they are contributing to the greater goal, but very often don't know how, right? As an individual contributor, even as a mid-level manager, it's sometimes difficult to understand what is it that I have to do to make this goal happen. And it's not always intuitive, right? So I think that's why as you step down the ladder, it's important to set those together and be very communicative about like a customer service person, right? This is not a senior job necessarily, right? Like if I'm just answering the phones and I'm helping customers, highly, highly important. I can give that person three very specific things that may roll up to a goal that they would never see the link to, right? That I think is important in that process. And the way I think about company goals on a quarter or a year basis is much more about answering the question about priority. Meaning Mm -hmm. if I'm sitting in my desk and I don't know if I should do A or B, the goal should tell me which of those two is more important because they are both probably important. It's which one do I do first? Yeah, prioritization. What's your theory on like developing people versus, you know, hiring folks in, right? Because I think that 
we've gotten very lucky and I think that it gave us some like false positives where we would have like really junior people who are just like fantastic humans just come in as a marketing intern and then, you know, they're here six years later as a principal engineer, right? You know, which is kind of insane to really think about. And so we're a little predisposed to try and like grow people. What's kind of your take on growing versus just like hiring in? And this is a question that has a lot, a lot to do with culture and you know, what the ability of managers are within the organization, right? Because to grow people, you need to have very strong managers, which may have absolutely nothing to do with their job position, right? So like, I think back to Grasshopper, like I know two people that have tremendously better management skills than me. Their one-on-ones are better. Like everything they do from a people perspective is better. 100% unrelated to what department they were in. Mm -hmm. They are probably people that could grow people far better than I can. I'm not a person that can grow people like it's just not me. Right. doesn't work. Right. So I think it depends on culture, depends on having management ability at those different layers. And then there's always outliers, right? Like the person who starts and, you know, is doing marketing and becomes, you know, something that's not even related to marketing. Right. And I don't think that's about growing people. That's just about you found something. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. I've always been impressed at tempo when it comes to you, like your organizations, or at least the way that you run organizations. And it's like, like you just explain it weekly, monthly, quarterly, like you're very like planning focused. Like how do you keep that kind of operational tempo amongst the team? Like when you're kind of breaking this down, like in terms of motivation, how do you make sure that, you know, the quarters don't get too long in terms of like, oh crap, we didn't discover this, but also it's like growth, 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 growth without feeling like a, you know, Mad Max death knell or something like that. Yeah. So I I think of this about rhythm. And so rhythm, I think is built into all the processes and procedures that we think about. Um, So that means like a daily meeting to a weekly meeting again, aligning on these same principles. So now we're communicating with employees on this same rhythm, but now we're also communicating as a department, as a company, and as a team on the same rhythm, right? So we have the same daily meetings, weekly meetings, quarterly meetings, yearly meetings, kind of broken up in the same fashion. And then two, this is an interesting trick about goals. And it is a hard balance as a founder to set goals that are reasonable, that can be reached and push people beyond their limits, right? Because as founders, we're like, I'm going to get to a million customers next month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, like, let's walk this back and figure out, like, is that even mathematically possible? And usually it's not, right? So I think the trick here is you need to build a, a culture of success where at least the first year of goals we are going to meet, right? Because there becomes this feeling of like, okay, I know that we can do this. David has told me we can do this. We did it. Now we've all believe in this. So on the next quarter, you can push a lot more. It still has to be mathematically possible. Like you can't have ridiculous goals, but building that culture of we accomplish, we succeed, we beat our targets, we meet our goals allows you to get much further. There's some organizations though that they always hit 95%, 93%. And then there's other organizations that I believe this came out of uh, HubSpot. I don't know if I can verify this. I heard it, you know, from, from someone random, I'm sure, where 
basically like if they weren't hitting 100%, they had kind of like maybe artificially lowered a little bit so that it was guaranteed 100%. So if it wasn't hitting 100%, it was really bad. Like, so basically they were always like hitting, like what's your, what's your kind of take? Like, is that 100% important based on what you just said? Or is it like a more aggressive goal always hitting 95? Like, okay. Yeah. So I'm fine missing the goal in later quarters, right? Like after I've set this culture of success, if we continue to do it, I'm now doing the opposite of what I wanted to do initially, right? Like if we have three or four quarters of missed goals, now we've built a culture of we always miss our goals, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a balance of like push enough that I think it's okay to miss some. You can't always miss. Yeah. So it shouldn't be a culture of like, yeah, we hit 95 and you know, that's great. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, with HubSpot, which is kind of interesting is like when they hit, it was always like that night was insane, like open bar, like that type of thing. But when, uh, and this is all pre IPO. So I don't know what happens <laughs> post IPO because you know, the thing rules get a little bit more aggressive then, but then, you know, when they would, wouldn't hit, it was like, who's getting fired. Like it was very like somber, that type of thing. So if we take a step back, we're talking about scaling up. We talked a lot about people and, and kind of a little bit of a tangent on goals and in that tempo uh, or that rhythm, as you said, like what else is like crucial or what else is kind of missing from those companies that, that aren't right fit and they should be, should be growing. One area that I consistently see is uh, systematically looking at marketing and systematically spending in marketing, right? I think that is a gap that a lot of companies miss, especially if they stall into these stages, right? Like, oh, we can't spend anymore. Oh, we've got to the most we can do on AdWords. Oh, there's lots of excuses that we make up, right? And we did this at Grasshopper again and again and again, right? So like we weren't immune to this, but we built processes to stop us from doing this, right? So the process is, is we always spent 10% on branding and you know other stuff, right? So that we knew things were kind of progressing. And we always dedicated at least 10% to testing knowing that a test means it can fail 100%, hmm. right? It doesn't mean that I need a ROAS of one, right, as a test. It means that I could spend $10,000 on a test and get zero back, Nothing. Yeah. right? And what that generates is always pushing the envelope forward of like, how do I discover new channels? How do I find places my competitors aren't? How do I find new channels that are expanding? Like again and again and again, and again, it's a system. So we came up with the excuses every year at our court, at our yearly planning. Oh, we've gotten all the customers we could ever get. Right. And then you start to think and you're like, well, no, we haven't. Right. Was the Gary Busey ad campaign, was that part of the test or was that That part of like, that was a a branding spend. That was a branding branding (laughs) spend. For those of you who don't know, they got uh, Gary Busey to do just kind of explainer videos, right? I can't even remember remember what they were. What do you call them? Like we gave him a script that he did not pay attention to at all. (laughs) What we approached originally was we wanted him to explain our core values, which spelled out Gary. Right. So we're like, Gary Busey, he's crazy. This will be fun. Who knows? And he just said all sorts of crazy stuff. So we just kind of used it for what we could. Okay. But I mean, honestly, we, it was internal to start out with. We're like, we want to talk about our core values in a fun way. The guy's name is Gary. Let's see what we can do. And we're going to call this branding. What's kind of interesting is you have a concept of like playing a game you can win. How does that jive with kind of like you know, marketing or channel or these types of things, like some of the experimentation you just said, or, or maybe just in general, if, if you want to kind of talk about yeah. that concept in, in general. 
Yeah, so it's a concept that I forget who introduced me to this, but it hit me very hard at the time yeah. because we were struggling with, um, I think exactly what we talked about a little bit, which is like this idea of OKRs, right? Like people wanting to do well, not knowing how to contribute, right? And so the person that told, I, I kind of remember who told me this, but either way, um, the idea is like A players want a game they can win, right? And that means two things. One, there's a clear objective of what winning means, mm. right? So that's super important. And two, there's a clear path to get there and I can talk about it together, right? Mm. And when I create this game that people can win, now A players perform at their best and B players get pulled up from B to A, right? And the idea is like the best people in the world want to win. And if you set them up for failure again and again, it doesn't work. Yeah. Pulled you back to the OKR combo. It wasn't my yeah, exactly. Really. It all goes back to people, though, right? Like, no, I know. Yeah. Just if you if you think about what we said, if you're going from 20 million plus, it's no longer me as the founder, right? Yeah. It, this is a team of other people, and people on those teams, right? That need strategic thinking and need you know a lot of other skill sets. Mm. So really, going beyond 20 million dollars, it is all the team. It's all people. Totally agree. I think if we go a layer down though, you talked about process a little bit as well, and you kind of mentioned it with the paid paid marketing concept. It's weird because some process is fantastic and then some process becomes bureaucracy, right? How do, how do you kind of square that? Because I'm sure it's really easy to say, oh, when you're going from a million to 10, you got to get these goal stuff in place. You got to get your recruiting stuff in place. You got to get your paid marketing stuff in place. But then like the actual scaling like effect does take that strategic thinking. So, so like, tell us a little bit about that. Like, how are you thinking about either where to get the most leverage or where to implement process or where to still experiment? And I'm throwing like 17 questions at you right now, but like, wh what's your kind of your take on that? Yeah. So I think one of the key things here is the weekly and monthly meetings that you have as a team, as a department, as a project, whatever it is, those are hundred percent. Every person in the company is in them that stops process from becoming bureaucratic, right? Cause like, think about this at the highest level of grasshopper, you know, we can make very fast decisions because of these meetings, right? Mm -hmm. So literally within seven days, we decided to spend $12 million on radio, right? We had a meeting on a Friday. Mm -hmm. We said, okay, here are the numbers. Here's what it looks like. There's a process that we went through and whatever else, do we do this? Yes or no. And we had decided before the next Friday. Is that a whole team meeting or is that like the marketing team meeting? That was the management team meeting in this okay, case. Okay, so it's the management team meeting. Right, but every department has a weekly and monthly meeting. Every department has a daily meeting, right? Every person in the company is in at least one, if not more. Okay, so there's a daily meeting for each department every single day. Yes. Even though you guys weren't remote, because that sounds a lot like a remote stand-up every day. Yeah, just no, in person. You came into Grasshopper in the morning and there was, we had four conference rooms. They were all full. And then there were other people in sets of cubicle and like all over the place doing their morning meetings. Yeah. And that just is basically just keeping the tempo up, making sure people can get unblocked, these types of things. And is the theory yeah, there five, five, like minutes, maybe. five minutes, you said? Five to seven minutes at the most. Okay. We're all continuous deployment now. So I forget all of my. Uh, yeah, like, a sprint, like, like, yes, it's like that. Right. But hundred percent of the team, no matter where they were. That's cool. Okay. And the idea there is like you said, you're basically not getting elongated piece of time 
before you discover a problem. Like it's the shortest or, or you're missing out an opportunity. The longest time should be seven days, right? The yeah, longest. Yeah. But when you think about reactivity versus proactivity, right? Like uh-huh. were you ever concerned about that? Because sometimes it's just like constantly reacting to like little things that come up and like competitor tweeted this, this thing happened here, that other thing happened here versus like, oh no, like we need to proactively get, not get distracted from like this particular goal. Yeah. So par- part of that is, you know, running those meetings well. So as the person running a daily meeting, if someone comes to a daily meeting with the same issues again and again, you need to address that. If they're stuck every day, you need to address that. If they are bringing strategic issues to a daily meeting, you need to build a culture of bringing them to a weekly meeting with a solution, right? So working with them up to that meeting and saying, okay, Patrick, you know, we talked about this. You've brought up competitors four times. Let's talk about it at the weekly meeting as an agenda item, right? And I want you to come with, what do I believe the problem is? How do I fix it? You know, very specifically so we can address it as a team and as a group. I think that that switches the culture a little bit when you yeah. run the meeting well. So basically those daily meetings are kind of, are you blocked? Anything of note? What am, I, what, what am I doing? Yeah. What did I accomplish? Where am I stuck? Right. And in a larger team, maybe a quick red, yellow, green, if I have a project that I'm responsible for, but that's it. There's no discussion that we don't solve problems on these calls. You know, we can always take it offline and that's probably a good thing to do. Hey, I heard two problems here. I'm going to spend the next half an hour addressing these two problems with those two team members right now. Yeah. And then weekly meeting, is that more straight up red, yellow, green and discussion? One hour meeting, definitely reporting on metrics, goals, you know, how's that roll up, kind of what company-wide communications that have to go up and down the organization, very specific department things. And then an agenda of anything we want to talk about and solve. The monthly meeting is roughly the same, except we usually add a learning component. Yeah. Right. So we say someone's going to bring something to learn, like kind of lunch and learns in essence. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's a marketing tactic. Maybe it's how to do scrambled eggs. Like we've done all sorts of crazy things, but it's building a culture of learning. Got it. So really, if, if I had to reverse engineer Grasshopper success, it was not being afraid to fire people or move them into different roles or whatever it needed to be. Just like people, people, people having a good rhythm. Do you think there's anything else like system level that helps you guys be really successful? Trying to think about other systems. So I think there's some financial stuff we can talk about. Like how do you build financial reporting and, Mm. you know, budgeting and processes around finances, some ideas around that. Let's talk about finances actually. I think that's good. Like, do you guys do zero-based budgeting or is it, was it more, Hey, here's this much money. Make sure it produces this. What was your style? Again, I think it, it, it changes with your organization over time, right? Like when we were $1 million, we shared nothing with anyone. Like we just kind of said, don't worry about the finances. We will deal with it. At $20 million, we had to have budgets and, you know, how do you create budgets and, you know, all of these things. But when I think about financial, I think much about it much more strategically, right? Like, yeah, there's lots of ways to do budgets. I think they're super important. I have lots of quick hacks for like, how do you push spending down and like, how do you save money? And like, we can talk about that. But strategically, I think as a growing organization, you need to address the very important topic of how do I reward my team based on success? And how do I share these numbers in a way that motivates, not demotivates people, right? Because I think the fear as entrepreneurs is like, 
okay, I'm going to tell people we did $50 million and we were super profitable. Now everyone's going to think I'm super wealthy and I took all the money. Oh, interesting. Right? Like how do you deal with those questions and problems? Then there are systems and processes we put in place to deal with this. One, we're communicating regularly. Two, we're rewarding people based on uh, a phantom equity program that we built, where in essence, we put in into a pool that people had ownership into a set amount of money, right? So now we're in this together, right? And we can say at the end of the year, we funded a million dollars into the pool, mm-hmm. right? Or, hey, this year, we're only putting $200,000 into the pool because we're spending $2 million on growing next year. Mm-hmm. And everyone is now bought in together as a group and said, okay, we heard what the goals are. We know we're investing $2 million in doing it. And I know that at the end of that year, our share of that is going to be much higher. So it's not profit sharing. It's a pool, right? But now my conversations around this are very different, right? And then I think about too, how do I have conversations as a management and executive team, right? Like Hmm. these are very hard conversations for a founder to have. Like how much do I pay a management team, right? Hmm. How much should I get paid as a founder, right? Like these are hard questions that unfortunately don't have good answers. What we always went back on was like, look, we want to overpay our people above market. And I always put it back on the management team and said, you tell me what is fair for your position above market. And then you tell me how much money I should make. Your goal is to maximize for both of us. That's interesting. Do you think that that pool concept, if you're kind of on a let's reinvest margin constantly back into the business kind of concept. Well, one, you might disagree with that premise, but let's say you're, you're on that, that route. Do you recommend that that should also happen just to incentivize the team? Or is it something that, because you know, one argument against that would be like, no, 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 keep reinvesting back into growth, take that million dollars, hire more people, so on and so forth. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a balance over time and it's a conversation that you should be had openly, right? Like mm. here are the goals that we have. Here's how much money it takes we may invest 100% back in, we may invest less, right? And compensation should be set up and structured where any participation in a pool is pure bonus, right? Mm-hmm. This is not like I came to you with a job offer and I said 75% is based and 25% is at risk and you needed the 25% to make the job offer work. No, no, no. This is mm-hmm. actual above and beyond bonus. Do you guys do that quarterly or yearly? When you think Yearly. About it? Quarterly is too short a period of time. You can't make decisions about how do you reinvest on a quarterly basis necessarily. Yeah. You have to kind of look at it at a year basis. And would it be based on like individual performance? Like if I hit these goals, I get my share of that pool. Is that kind of how the concept was? No. So the con- I mean, you, you wouldn't be around if you weren't hitting your goals, right? So we Got kind it. of ignored that portion of it. Like you're not hitting your goals. You're not going to make it to the end of the year. Plain Got and simple, it. right? But your ownership or participation in that pool was dependent on your level, right? So an individual contributor had a certain amount, just like you would define options or any other thing, right? There's different levels of people for different reasons and responsibilities, right? So a manager obviously has more, you know, control of what's happening. So they have more incentive in the pool. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. All right. I got a little bit of a rapid fire based on some fun topics from research. No free marketing. You're not a yeah, marketing yeah. guy? What's up with that? So I think far too many companies, you know, just jump on this bandwagon. And I love Jason and the guys at Basecamp, but this is a very unique situation and is not a case study for how to run a company, yeah. right? Like there are free marketing channels, including SEO and content and whatever. 
all of them should be run as, as paid channels, meaning a full in loaded compensation, uh, measure it on a per CPA basis and ROAS, like look at all the same metrics and run it as if you were running a paid channel, um, but don't rely on free marketing or kind of content and whatever else you want to put into this category as the only way to build a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying basically you got to do paid on some level. I mean, if you're not doing paid, I think you're missing out. And I've told a number of companies that rely on this heavily, they are missing out on a tremendous amount of revenue by not doing paid advertising. There is no question about it. Yeah, even if it's promoting the content, those types of things. The only ways to do it. But if you're just not doing it, lost opportunity. Bullets before cannonballs. Uh, So this goes back to our testing concept, right? Like you always have to be testing again and again. And when you are testing properly, it means that you are sending out lots of bullets rather than making big bets, right? So making lots of small bets, they get bigger and bigger over time. And as you get bigger, a bullet today may have been a cannonball three years ago, but it is in relation to kind of size of company and size of budget. Yeah. No exit plan. So we never had an exit plan for Grasshopper. And I think a lot of companies fail here because they're like, well, I have to get to X amount of revenue to have, you know, whatever company buy me or I, their own, the only success is building a company for exit. No, the success is building a company that's sustainable, has revenue on an ongoing basis and is profitable. Yeah. If you think that way, exits will happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ignoring competitors. You still believe in ignoring competitors or no? I do. And this is, I think, increasingly hard in a CPG space because things change rapidly and people like compare products and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think you need to believe in what you're doing, have conviction and continue on that path and not just, well, our competitor is doing X, so we have to do it as well. Actually, we didn't talk about this at all. Like, how do you think about R&D? right? Like engineering these types of things. Cause the product. No, so not, not rip off and duplicate. But basically that's funny. I don't think I've ever actually heard that, especially because product like growth is now such a big thing, which technically that's just redefining, you know, SaaS, you know, in, in certain ways, like how do you think about where product comes into to the whole scheme of things? Yeah, this, this is a hard one for me because I actually think that product doesn't matter as much as other people do. Right. So the way we thought about this at Grasshopper was, if we're providing a valuable service to our customers and we can reach those customers again and again and again, from a marketing perspective, we can be successful, Hmm. right? We didn't worry if our product was perfect, if it was built for virality, like all these things, like none of those things were talked about. And the way this plays out is we didn't have text messaging until four years after our competitors did. Hmm. Right. I don't think it cost us a single customer and definitely didn't, lose us revenue because we asked our customers, are you willing to pay for this? And they said, no, nice to have, maybe I'd like it, but I'm not going to pay for it. That answers the question, right? So I I default back to like, what are people willing to pay for? How can I get them to pay as quickly as possible for as little as possible and then continue to build, right? And then the way I look at research and development in a software sense is much more about how do I improve efficiencies on my cost side, or my acquisition side, things like that, um, compared to like, how do I invent new things? That's just not who I am. It's not to say other companies, that's not important, right? So you probably, you would probably wouldn't find yourself working on something that you're not going to build Tesla. Like you're not going to be like, I'm going to reinvent everything. You're more like, I'm going to reinvent, but like on an iterative way. Is that a, is that a good way to put it? As long as someone's willing to pay for it. Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I like that. All right. Well, cool, man. Where can people find you? Anything you want to plug? All that kind of stuff? Yeah, davidhauser.com. I write a weekly newsletter. Um, goes to over 10,000 people uh, a week now. And um, I've found a lot of joy in writing it and just sharing about three topics a week that I find interesting. Business, finance, health, entrepreneurship, software, um, kind of all the stuff we talked about and you know, I, I kind of naturally talk about. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate this, brother. It was good catching up. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks to David for lending his time to the episode this week. Now you have what it takes to be a full-flavored operator. We talked about the itch to strategically operate, a system for firing and developing people, keeping the rhythm with the operational success, building a culture of learning, and sharing numbers in a way that motivates. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Subscriptions.